This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you once again on a lovely Saturday morning for what is our 62nd consecutive program dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. On today's show, my guest is going to be Mr. Eric Arlia. Uh, Mr. Arlia is the Senior Director of System Pharmacies for Hartford HealthCare. He's been on our program before, and I brought him back on to specifically talk to us about boosters. We've all been getting information about the booster shot for COVID-19. But typically, when we get this information, right, you're watching the news or hearing it in the news, you get a little bit of a snippet of information. It doesn't really take a deep dive into the need for boosters. What is a booster? Have we used boosters before? Who should be getting the booster and when? So that's what we're going to do in the second half hour of the program. We're going to take questions from our listeners uh, and have been, but specifically to this topic by email. So we're not taking calls, but you can email me live at info at alessimd.com. And I'm happy to pose your question to Mr. Arlia when he's on in the second half of the program. There are so many hot topics going on now with COVID-19 and our fight against this pandemic. Um, specifically, as I mentioned, boosters are the big topic this week. We're hearing about medical services that are overrun in some parts of the country. Unfortunately, that has not been the case here in Connecticut. And the reason it's not been the case here in Connecticut is because people have been getting vaccinated. So 68% of the Connecticut population is fully vaccinated at this time. That's good, but not great. And I keep coming up against patients and people who are not vaccinated. So even I'm surprised it's that high. Although our weekly average for positivity was 2.7%, so that's down in the last two weeks, Thursday we got down as low as 1.88%. So fortunately, we are moving in the right direction. What's moving in the wrong direction nationally is children being infected and taking up hospital beds. The number of children who have now contracted COVID-19 is up 240%. The most valuable thing we have in this country are our children, and we're letting them get vaccinated, not letting them get infected now. And the reason they're getting infected is because they are around adults who are not vaccinated. The American numbers are astonishing. Over 682,000 Americans are dead as a result of this pandemic. The positivity rate, so I told you, our positivity rate on Thursday was 1.88%. Nationally, the positivity rate is 8%. 
only 56% of the country are fully vaccinated. And we are now facing over 2,000 deaths a day. We thought we left this behind. These thousands of dead Americans every day as a result of the infection. So in some respects, we're making progress, but it's clearly not fast enough. One of the big progressive things we've had this week has been the use of booster shots that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about. Let's face it, vaccines are now available, effective, safe, and free. We have proven that. We have given out enough vaccines. We have done it over a long enough period of time in dealing with COVID-19 to demonstrate that they are effective and safe. And we know they're free. No other country is doing what we've done. Yet, we have 70 million eligible Americans who are not vaccinated. That is virtually criminal. And this is allowing the COVID virus to now mutate. And I get a lot of questions and and comments about that. Um, For example, will the virus eventually become a deadly variant? So, so far, the deaths from COVID are the result of damage the virus does, not the virus itself. So the virus will damage the lungs. The virus will damage the heart, causing death. But the virus itself will not become deadly. Why is that? And the reason is because the virus is a parasite. It needs a host to live. So for it it's, uh, it in and of itself to become deadly, it will destroy a host. It will destroy its ability to live. But by the same token, its goal is, right, to be much more transmissible. So its goal is to be able to spread, not kill. So that's the real goal of the virus. So we're not worried about it becoming deadly. We're worried about it's spreading easier. And that's the case with the Delta variant. We know it spreads more easily. It spreads via respiratory droplets. We know that it takes less time for a droplet to cause infection and in a lower concentration based on this variant. We don't want to face additional variants. This day in medicine, on September 25th, 1773, Dr. Agostino Bassi is an Italian physician. And um, he was an infectious disease specialist. And he died on this date in 1773. And he was key in doing a lot of research in cholera, pellagra, pellagra. And his purpose really, he, his biggest thing he did was he proved that animal and plant parasites will spread disease. So this was fully a decade before we heard from Louis Pasteur. And the reason I bring him up is because so many infectious disease specialists, even before we called it infectious disease specialty, so many of them have been working tirelessly for centuries 
and been a key part of the medical establishment and our medical progress. Yet, they come under harsh criticism now. Uh, our public health specialists uh, get death threats um, when in the past they were put on a pedestal for the numbers of lives they've saved. So maybe we should look to the past a little bit before we move forward. With that, we're going to take a short break, and then I'm going to be back uh, to go over some of the questions that have been coming in, a little bit more information. We want to talk about the Pfizer vaccine for children, uh, talk a little bit about Guillain-Barre syndrome and getting the vaccine. Also, if you want to get questions to me for the second half of our program with Mr. Arlia, you can reach me at info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi this morning, 11 till noon on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. We're back on Healthy Rounds and we have questions coming in and I like them so far. So we're going to uh, use quite a few of these uh, when we chat with Mr. Arlia. Uh, I learned a new term uh, this this week, and that was zonerism. Um, and it was an interesting history behind the term. It was a young man named Nathan Zoner. In 1997, he was 14 years old. And he won a science project and his a science competition. His project was he got 43 out of 50 ninth graders to vote to ban dihydrogen monoxide. So they all voted, and they wanted this chemical banned. What they didn't know, it's also known as water. It's just a different name for H2O. And uh, what happened is it led to not only him winning the competition, but it is now an, expect, it, it, an accepted term of zonerism. And zonerism is defined as the use of a fact to lead a scientifically ignorant public to a false conclusion. Isn't that what we're experiencing today? Right? When people hear the word messenger RNA, right? Messenger RNA. Wow. Can't be good. RNA. Something that goes in your cell could destroy you when it does none of those things. So it's, it's just a different way of getting people scared who are clearly scientifically ignorant. So I thought it was such an appropriate term, and, and I had not heard um, that story. As I mentioned before, the, the, the rate of infection in children is up 240%. So... When are we going to be able to start vaccinating children? And when I say children, I'm talking uh, between the ages of 5 and 11. And that's hopefully soon. Uh, Pfizer came out with their uh, data that is now up for review. Um, but they're using one-third the dose that they use in adults. So people are saying, well, why is that? And there are a couple of reasons. Children's immune system is highly productive, highly reactive, working all the time. As we get older, that slows up. So in that case, we get a higher concentration of the 
vaccine for it to be effective. And this is based on large groups, large numbers of patients in who this is studied. So you might say, well, I may have a really good immune system, so I only need a smaller dose, but we don't know that. And it's too risky considering that at the doses prescribed, uh, we're not having any problem. Again, it's a safe vaccine. Uh, one question I had this week was, uh, will the vaccine worsen adult asthma? And uh, no, the answer is no, that the vaccine, uh, there's no evidence that the vaccine will worsen asthma. What you do need to be mindful of is the virus, as all viruses, will cause acute asthma attacks. So any infection, whether it be viral, bacterial, whatever it is, can easily tip over the side and worsen someone's asthma. But we've not had any cases reported where the vaccine has done that. I had a good question this week, something I mentioned before. We talked a little bit about uh, the situation at Connecticut College where they had to really shut things down. And uh, the question posed to me by Pat was one that was interesting was that if they have 100% of their students vaccinated, how could they have such an outbreak? So what we know is that even if you have 100% of your population vaccinated, you still need to be wearing a mask now uh, because of the Delta variant. Uh, in the case of Connecticut College, uh, the problem is, is always that students go outside the bubble and are around other people. In this case, we know that the vaccine is 90% effective against the alpha variant, but with the delta variant, that has clearly dropped. And unvaccinated people essentially serve as a, a petri dish for the virus to mutate and flourish. So as time has passed, the vaccines have become less effective, and that's why we need boosters. But uh, currently, uh, in the case of Khan College, I think they've gotten this under control. Uh, but despite mandating vaccines, some of the students have exemptions uh, and uh, can easily spread the virus. Uh, and the students involved were not uh, using a mask indoors and were having uh, parties and uh, gathering uh, among themselves uh, without masks. And that resulted in an outbreak. Uh, but that brings up a good topic, that, the, the topic of exemptions. So right now, a lot of people will grant religious and medical exemptions. Um, one institution I work at, the University of Connecticut, uh, has, uh, uh, the way I understand, I think it's 179 exemptions uh, were granted. And, and these are looked at very carefully by a committee. Because a medical exemption is not something that's going to be handed out that easily. More people are applying now because of the mandates. But we just had a situation reported uh, today where a physician in Durham uh, was handing out um, papers with exemptions without ever examining the patient. So people would mail in and they would get a blank form signed by this physician granting them an exemption 
because of a medical condition they don't have. Um, this is medical malpractice. This is fraud. Um, this person did lose their license, and I hope that's permanent because we take an oath uh, in order to take care of patients, and this wasn't the case. This was some rogue physician who has decided to make a statement in some way, shape, or form and, in fact, result in losing her ability to practice medicine and possibly help others. So these charlatans are out there many of whom, I don't know if that was the case here, I don't think it was the case where they were charging for the note, uh, but in, in many cases, um, they're charging uh, people money for these letters to get them exempt so that they could get sick and die. I mean, the, the numbers are so clear. Uh, it, it's, just, uh, it, it's just almost ridiculous from the standpoint that we see people dying every day who are not vaccinated. Over... Over 94% of the people who are hospitalized now are unvaccinated people, just hospitalized. Deaths are relatively few. So we know the vaccine works. And yet there are people who are trying to contrive ways of not getting the vaccine, which is puzzling. Um, two cases came up to me this week. Um, they were patients who uh, said that they had had Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, in the past, and were told not to get the vaccine. Um, that is untrue uh, from the standpoint that it is safe for people who have had Guillain-Barre syndrome to get the vaccine. And in fact, in fact, it is more urgent that they get the vaccine. Uh, let me explain. Uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome is a syndrome where the body is subjected to a virus, and the virus looks like peripheral nerves, the nerves that are in your arms and legs and face. When the body tries to fight that virus, it will mistakenly, in this case, attack part of those peripheral nerves, the insulation around the nerves. Now, there have been discussions in the past, and people have said that it was caused by people who got the swine flu vaccination in 1976. That has proven to be untrue. And in fact, no vaccine has proven to cause the Guillain-Barre syndrome. What has proven to cause the Guillain-Barre syndrome is a virus. So when patients come to me and say, well, I had Guillain-Barre syndrome, um, that's why I didn't get the vaccine, that's a big, big mistake. And there's no data to support that. And it's been looked at in detail. So if you have Guillain-Barre syndrome or had it, uh, please get the vaccine. You will need it moving forward. Um, one of the other things that, that keeps uh, coming up uh, is uh, when uh, we look at uh, a lot of what's going on in the press regarding pregnancy and young children and uh, should pregnant women get the vaccine. And it is important for them to get the vaccine. 
because those antibodies do cross over into the fetus and will also protect the young child. Actually, uh, next week's program, I really want to get somebody on so we could talk a little bit about that, um, and especially uh, with respect to breastfeeding and breast milk, um, because that also has the antibody to protect children. So we really want to get into that topic, and and I think it's such a big topic, we will uh, arrange to have someone come on with us uh, next week uh, to go over that. All right, we're going to take a short break. If you have other questions for me, uh, in addition to the ones coming in, get them over to me at info at alessimd.com. And we will be back shortly with my guest, Mr. Eric Arlia, who is the Senior Director of System Pharmacies for Hartford HealthCare. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, this morning, 11 till noon, on WTIC News Talk 1080 at WTIC.com. We're back on Healthy Rounds, and the questions are coming in fast and furiously. Um, I'm going to get to some of them. Some of them are pertinent for today's show, um, and others I will answer next week. But uh, some very good questions coming in. Uh, for our guest, uh, Mr. Eric Arlia. Mr. Arlia is the Senior Director of System Pharmacy at Hartford HealthCare. He has been a friend of mine for many years when he directed the pharmacy at the William W. Backus Hospital and been a friend of our program. Eric, welcome to the show. Good morning, Dr. Alessi. Great to talk to you again. All right. So we've heard a lot about boosters. I have been watching you on every talk show in the morning and every news show. Um, but we want to get into what are, let's start with what are the current guidelines as they stand today, knowing that they could change, but as they stand today, what are the current guidelines and recommendations regarding a booster? Sure. Let's go through, let's go through the different um, groups that were reviewed and considered. So the easiest one, um, is anyone, regardless of any disease states or where they work, anyone over the age of 65, um, the CDC is recommending that they get a booster dose. Uh, now, everything I'm going to talk about, Dr. Alessi, is related to people who originally got the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, everybody just needs to keep in mind that these are going to be reviewed one brand at a time. So uh, what we have available now is for people who um, got their original series from the Pfizer vaccine. So anyone over the age of 65, anyone who is between the age of 50 and 64 uh, that has a underlying medical condition that um, makes it more likely they may have severe COVID, it's also recommended that they get the COVID vaccine. Uh, and there's a list of those disease states available on the CDC website. Uh, it, it's it's ones that you would you would think of people with respiratory issues, people with diabetes, people with heart disease. Those are really the three biggest ones. The complete list is available on their site. The the, the committee also voted uh, in a separate vote, uh, looking at people between the ages of 18 and 49, with that same list of disease states, uh, and they did um, recommend that they can at least consider getting the booster dose. So the the, the advisory committee gave it a little bit of a lower recommendation, but um, really for that, it's, it's really more of an individual decision and probably something that they might want to talk to their provider about, uh, weighing the risks versus the benefits. And then the last 
category, which is the one that obviously ended up being the most controversial, is for uh, people who, uh, because of where they work, have an increased risk of exposure to the COVID vaccine. So it's not really about their age or about their overall general health. It's about what they do for a living, you know, and how likely it is that they could be exposed in an occupational, uh, as an occupational hazard. So that's the one that the committee actually turned down. But then later that night, uh, Dr. Walensky, the director of the CDC, decided to also include, you know, she has the final decision, um, decision ability for the CDC. And what she ended up recommending matches up with what the FDA's advisory panel had approved uh, last Friday. Eric, can you explain, we're taking a step backwards, why do people even need a booster? Why, what is the reason? Now, uh, you and I know these have been used in the past. This is not a new concept, but mm-hmm. why are we recommending boosters now in the fight with this pandemic? So, you know, this is a new disease for us, and it's also a new type of vaccine. Uh, so I, we're, scientists are learning as we go. Uh, you know, one of the things that they're most closely watching is antibody levels, uh, using that as a correlation to one's ability to quickly fight off infection if they become exposed. Uh, so, you know, the studies are showing that, you know, at, after six months, those antibody levels uh, tend to drop, uh, and giving a booster dose uh, very quickly raises them back up. So, you know, when we started this journey back last year, I actually remember talking to you about this on the program. We didn't know. It was an unknown just because of how new the technology is and that and it's a new disease. And obviously also since then, we've seen some significant mutations occur uh, to the virus. So, uh, you know, based on the research being done, and again, each, each drug company is doing their own studies and then submitting them to the FDA. Uh, that's how we're making the decision on, you know, how much time interval there should be for a booster. It's not really surprising that there is a booster. Um, you know, we, we give boosters, like, as you know, to many disease states. Tetanus in particular, we get one every 10 years, right? Right, correct. That's a perfect example. The flu vaccine, you know, as we all know, we get a flu vaccine uh, dose every year. That also, the other thing that can come into play with boosters, it, it didn't in this case yet, uh, but you may tweak the original vaccine based on mutations. Uh, so I could imagine in the future you you might see a booster or, or an additional dose of the vaccine if, if a mutation occurs that the original vaccine isn't as effective on. I think we're, you know, it's great fortune for all of us that the original vaccines are very effective against the Delta variant, which is the predominant variant we're seeing in this country and around the world right now. Uh, so we, we don't have to wait for any kind of modification to the vaccine to occur. It's really just trying to keep those antibody levels up um, in, in a higher range. Eric, since you mentioned the flu uh, and the flu shot, uh, I have several questions that have come in regarding that. The first is, uh, if someone is going to get their COVID booster shot, can they get their flu shot at the same time? Yes, they can. When the when the vaccine first came out last winter, uh, the original recommendation was to space it um, apart from other vaccines. But then uh, some, sometime in the early spring, they modified that. Uh, because they weren't really finding that there was any issue with giving it with more than one vaccine. So, you know, I actually think that's a great way. Uh, the timing is perfect. You know, we're just about entering uh, the season where people get vaccinated. I know at Hartford Healthcare, we'll be 
uh, beginning to offer flu vaccine to our employees uh, a week from now. Uh, it, you know, there's absolutely no issue with giving uh, both vaccines at the same time. Uh, since we're on the topic of the flu vaccine again, uh, there's an over 65 flu vaccine and then the regular flu vaccine. What's the difference? Um, the, the higher, it's a higher dose, the, okay. um, the over 65. So it, it just, you know, because older people don't always uh, generate as robust of an immune response, the higher dose can just help um, increase that ability. Is there ever a need for a booster shot with the flu vaccine, um, like later in the year or something of that nature? Has that ever been done or is that something recommended? If it was a significant mutation or a strain of the flu vaccine that came out um, and it wasn't anticipated and it was severe, uh, you know, you could have a supplemental vaccine. I remember about 10 years ago, uh, we we got a, a supplemental vaccine for the H1N1 strain. Um, you know, and I think we started it midway through the winter, if my memory serves me correctly. I, it's unusual, but it certainly could happen. I think they've gotten really good at predicting the strains of flu that are going to travel from the southern hemisphere to the northern hemisphere each year. You know, and, you know, the flu vaccine isn't, isn't actually as effective as the COVID vaccine is, but it's been providing good, you know, good immune response overall. We haven't had well, an issue like this come up where a, a severe strain that wasn't covered at all needed to be addressed in quite a while. Well, I think we adequately demonstrated last year that the most effective uh, flu vaccine is a mask, um, since yeah. there's been there were so many cases, so few cases of the flu since we were wearing masks. Um, it was amazing. Absolutely it was absolutely amazing. I mean, the the number of flu cases we had was was almost none. Uh, it, it it was an incredible demonstration of how effective masks are. Yeah, um, frontline workers. Um, who does that include? So the, the CDC does have a list of frontline workers. Uh, we haven't seen a official list come from the state of Connecticut yet, and we, we're not sure if we will see that or not, or if they will just refer us uh, to the federal list. You know, the big ones are obviously healthcare workers and first responders. Um, I'll pull the list up so I can read it off. I had it up, and of course now. I lost it. Uh, I know a lot of it off the top of my head, though. Sure. Teachers uh, is on the is on the federal list. Um, police and fire, congregate care staff, uh, daycare workers, food and agricultural workers, manufacturing workers, correction workers, U.S. Postal Service workers, public transit workers, and grocery store workers. So again, that's the CDC list right now. Um, no, no specific guidance from Connecticut Department of Health yet, uh, but I know that, you know, obviously things were happening very fast there the last few days of the week. I wouldn't be surprised if we get a, like a more concise list from the state or at least get guidance to follow the, the, the state list of the federal list. Um, we, what what's we're the... doing right now in our clinics is just asking people to attest to being eligible. Yeah, I was going to ask you that question, and actually... Um... What's the plan for HHC? Uh, you're going to be vaccinating workers, right? Um, uh, mm -hmm. Your own workers, correct? Yeah. Um, will you yeah. have public clinics as well, or are most people going to go to pharmacies, or how are you guys doing it? Yeah, so there there are a lot of uh, there are a lot more places you can get the vaccine now than uh, in the early days, but we are still having clinics for the public. In fact, we had 
uh, two clinics today, one in Torrington and one at Hartford Hospital. They were our first two clinics to offer the booster. Uh, we have a, a schedule next week of um, clinics at uh, all of our acute care sites, uh, a couple of our medical group sites that offer public clinics. We're watching to see how fast they fill up. Uh, our system is all updated now. Uh, if you have a My Chart account with Hartford Healthcare, you can log in. Uh, and you can go through the steps to attest that you qualify and then see where we have appointments available. Um, if, if we find that those, those appointments fill up, we'll reassess and probably add some additional hours. Uh, for our, our frontline workers, they can do that um, also. And we're also planning to offer it at a lot of our flu clinics, back to the question you asked me earlier, uh, just for their convenience and for efficiency's sake. Uh, many of our many of our employees will be able to do it that way. That's great. Uh, we're going to take a short break. We're going to be back with my uh, guest, Mr. Eric Arlia, the Senior Director of System Pharmacy for Hartford HealthCare. Uh, I want to get to the questions that have been coming in and continue to come in um, while we have uh, Mr. Arlia for a few more minutes. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. <laughs> Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, this morning, 11 till noon, on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. We're back on Healthy Rounds, and in this final segment, we have uh, more questions from my guest, Mr. Eric Arlia. Uh, one question that came in, Eric, was, uh, why has there been so much pushback on monoclonal antibodies and not make them as readily available as the vaccine? Uh, it's an interesting question, but first of all, I don't think there's been any pushback on monoclonal antibodies. It's just the fact that they're a treatment as well as, I mean, you always want to avoid an illness as mm -hmm. opposed to treat an illness with the very expensive treatment, by the way. But can you talk a little bit about what monoclonal antibodies are so maybe we can clarify that? But I don't, uh, I know they're, they're using them a lot, right? I mean, you're the guy who supplies them, so... Um, <laughs> Well, we get them, you know, we, we, there's, there's two different monoclonal antibodies available right now, um, and they're, they're, they're being supplied to hospitals and other providers at no charge uh, by the federal government. Uh, they're under emergency use authorization to treat. I, I didn't know that they um, were free. I didn't know that the government is paying free. for They are free. At some point, they probably won't be free anymore. It's, it's very similar to what happened last year when remdesivir came out, uh, yeah. when it was first when it was first available, it was being allocated and it was free of charge. Uh, still, we're still in that scenario with the monoclonal antibodies. Uh, we haven't had any significant issues getting supply of them. I think, you know, we've been we've been treating people at many of our acute care facilities uh, for I want to say about five or six months now. Um, I've noticed actually in the last month uh, an increase at many of our sites and how many people they're treating with the monoclonal antibodies. I think. You know, we've become more proficient at identifying those patients and, you know, working them through the process to get uh, the therapy ordered and administered. Uh, so um, it, I think it's going well. I think it's, it's a tool uh, that maybe took a little bit more time to catch on. Uh, at first, it was really a struggle to figure out, you know, how to find the patient and then where to safely treat them. Remember, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a therapy that can be given to someone who doesn't need to be hospitalized, which is great. You can give them a one-hour infusion, observe them for another hour, and then send them home to recover. The only problem with that is you have to find a place to treat them 
where they don't expose other patients to COVID. So, you know, we work through all those logistics, though. And like I said, uh, we've seen an increase in the number of patients that we're treating with the monoclonal antibodies. Um, so I think it's going really well. And it's just another tool in our arsenal to keep people from having severe illness. I think the key is, as I recall, and you could correct me, um, I, you have to treat somebody within, is it 10 days or five days of turning positive? Um, there's a time limit where it's effective. Is that true? Yeah, the, there, there's no official time limit on the emergency use authorization. However, all of the studies were done uh, yeah. treating people within 10 days of being identified. Yeah. So when we wrote our guideline at Hartford HealthCare, and I think most sites have this, we have the 10-day limit. Right. And, and I know at Bacchus Hospital, I sent a patient over there, and um, they, they have a separate infusion area now in the emergency department, right, to administer monoclonal antibodies in a safe setting. Yeah, um, all of the, all the acute sites have, have kind of designated certain areas for all the reasons I was talking about before. Uh, so those patients aren't close to other patients, but there's, you know, all of the equipment and supplies needed to, to give them these infusions. Bacchus is actually doing a really, really, really great job with the uh, monoclonal antibodies. They're one of the higher uh, utilizers in our system. The problem is, and, and to the person who asked the question, is you don't want to have to use monoclonal antibodies because if someone's been vaccinated and they don't get the disease, you then don't have to go for the infusion. So obviously that's the tact, but um, it's it's pretty clear that uh, there's not any uh, pushback right now on that. Um, here's one. Uh, so we have an ivermectin fan. Um, I hate to give you this one, but um, it, uh, our, our pharmacies are filling prescriptions for ivermectin if they're legitimate, aren't they? Well, I mean, ivermectin is an approved right. uh, medication. It, uh, yeah. it, you know, it, it does it treats parasites. It doesn't treat yeah. viruses. Uh, but yeah. there are uses for it in both veterinary and human medicine. Right. So, okay, because the question was, why are pharmacists being prevented from filling ivermectin prescriptions? And I don't think that's true. Uh, no, I mean, as long as it's a legitimate prescription, they shouldn't be prevented from doing sure. so. I would. I would I would I wouldn't be surprised if pharmacists are doing what pharmacists should do and you know using their um, you know using their safety behaviors and thinking about whether or not it seems like an appropriate indication um, you know that's part of what we do as pharmacists is to ensure that medications are used properly so if they had a suspicion it wasn't being prescribed for an appropriate use it certainly is within the you know professional ability of a pharmacist to at least check that. And once again, I want to uh, uh, caution everyone that if there's a picture of a horse or a cow on the medicine, don't use it. Right? Yeah, um, I mean, the, obviously, like I said, yeah. there, there's there's no evidence out there that it's effective against viruses. Yep. But the, the, the additional problem with the veterinary ones is they're much more concentrated. You know, and then uh, you can really get into some high toxicity situations. Eric, in wrapping up, uh, where are we headed um, in terms of boosters, vaccines? Do you think we're going to need one every year? Um, you know, if you had a crystal ball in front of you uh, based on all your years of experience, where are we heading? Well, let's, let's, let's look short term first. Uh, I wanted, I, one thing I want to assure people who received the Moderna vaccine and the J&J vaccine, uh, we know that both companies are finalizing their studies. 
of the effectiveness and the timing and the dosage of their boosters. So I, you know, I, I, I want them to know that this is hopefully coming soon for them. And obviously when it does, uh, Hartford Healthcare and other providers will be ready to service them. So, you know, we want to make sure everybody uh, who's eligible for boosters, regardless of what brand they received, you know, you know, we can take care of them hopefully over the next month or two. You know, looking into a crystal ball, a little, little bit out of my league as a pharmacist, but like I said, um, you know, we'll have to carefully watch a couple of things. You know, if there's a significant mutation to the virus uh, such that the, the original vaccine doesn't work as effectively anymore, that would certainly be a reason perhaps for a booster in the future. Uh, again, like I said, because it's such a new virus, such a new vaccine technology, really hard to predict uh, if this you know, first round of boosters is going to kick in more of a long-term immunity. Uh, it, it certainly is possible. So uh, maybe it's not a one-year thing. You know, you, you mentioned um, uh, uh, diphtheria uh, booster earlier. That was, a, uh, I mean, tetanus, tetanus and diphtheria together. That's a 10-year cycle. You know, maybe this one won't be an annual cycle, but there'll be some regularity to it. Hard to say. I think that's really the key. How long will will there be an increase in antibodies and overall immune response? And then, you know, just tracking the mutation of the virus. Eric, thank you very much. Thanks for your time today. And thanks for all you do uh, to keep our community safe. Uh, much appreciated, thank buddy. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for the time. And to uh, listeners who sent in questions, some of the questions are great, um, and I will take uh, address them on next week's show. Meg, you had a lot of questions there, uh, and we had a question about uh, cardiac side effects to COVID and the vaccine, so we will um, talk about those in the future. Many thanks to our studio producer, uh, Anthony Dorenzo has been on the board. Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. If you missed any part of today's show, you can get the Healthy Rounds podcast at odyssey.com and uh, download it. Uh, next up on WTIC is going to be Law Talk with John Matulis. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.